Oh, John wants to see him. I went, bullshit. So suppose Elvis is out there, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I go back to sleep, and he says, uh, Elvis John says, there's two of you. He's going down there, and he was living in Atlanta. Yeah, oh, yeah. And he's there. And right when I walked on stage, he says, hey, Kenny, I'm going to be on the side of stage. Don't fuck up. Darn was. I think it really should be Don is, because he's still so relevant, or it should be Don was not was is. <laughs> His given name is Don Edward Baconson, but very few people know him by that name. Now, I've worked with Don for over 33 years on many, many records, TV specials, documentaries, movies, and live shows where he played electric and or upright bass, produced the record we were working on, but was the musical director or MD for a live show that was being filmed and recorded. And sometimes he was doing all three at the same time, playing, producing, and being the musical director. Don was, is, was one of the founding members of a band from Detroit called Was Not Was and has been a radio host, film composer, and is currently president of the American jazz label Blue Note Records. He's still producing records and has been on tour with Bob Weir and the Wolf Brothers, I love that name, since 2018. There's literally no other person in the universe that handles all of this at the level that Don does. And here's another name I think for you. It should be called Don Does, because he does. <laughs> the first time I worked with Don, he was producing Iggy Pop's Brick by Brick record. And one night, he left the session to go to the Grammys in Los Angeles. And Benson all of a sudden, it's like, he's on TV, our producer Don, barefoot, with the afro and the glasses. It's winning two Grammys, one for the album of the year for Bonnie Raitt's record, Nick of Time, and the other for the B-52 song, Love Shack. And we couldn't believe it. We didn't see it coming, and probably neither did Don. Don didn't see that coming. <laughs> anyway, he's won six Grammys in total, been nominated 11 times, and has sold nearly 100 million records worldwide with a variety of artists. I mean, he also has won San Francisco Film Festival's Golden Gate Award for a documentary about the life of Brian Wilson, the British Academy Award for his work as a composer for Best Original Film Score for the movie Backbeat, and an Emmy Award for Outstanding Music Direction for his work with the CBS special The Beatles, The Night That Changed America, which, thank God, he asked me to play drums on that. And to this day, it's probably one of the greatest moments in my career. I mean, playing with Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, my heroes, I was just, I was that high. He also served as musical director and or consultant for several motion pictures such as Thelma Louise, The Rainmaker, Hope Floats, Phenomenon, Tin Cup, Honeymoon in Vegas, Eight Seconds, Switch, The Freshman, Days of Thunder, Michael, Predator Porter, crazy name, Boys on the Side, Toy Story, and The Paper. And the cool thing for me is he hired me to do most of those soundtracks. <laughs> I love it. I haven't heard those names in a while. I could go on and on. Darren Was has molded a resume and a discography rivaled by very, very few, working with some of the most prolific artists across both genres and generations, including, but not limited to the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Bob Seger, Barney Raitt, Iggy Pop, Willie Nelson, Elton John, John Mayer, Chris Christopherson, Greg Allman, the B-52s, Brian Wilson, Garth Brooks, Chris Gaines, Ryan Adams, and the Highwaymen which is Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, Wayne Jennings, and Chris Christopherson all are in one band. But Don's biggest attribute, in my opinion, is his ability to make everybody 
in a room feel loved, respected, and important. He listens and he's patient. He's the coach and he's the player, the general and the warrior, allowing everyone to lead when it's their time. He's a genius at surrounding himself with super talented, hardworking, serving team players. When you think about it, teams win Super Bowls and World Series, not individuals. And Don knows that better than anyone. So he assembles amazing teams for everyone to project and get, make this project incredible. I mean, that's brilliant. Don, did I leave anything out? See ya. <laughs> I think that's the whole show. I, Next week, folks. <laughs> Don, you're the coolest, man. I mean, that is really, I'm serious about that after because, I mean, uh, you know, you know, I've been in sessions with a, a producer can be really uptight and it, it, it affects the mood. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, you got to, you got to feel safe to take chances hey, without a repercussion. You got to, you got to be willing. You got to feel great about jumping off the cliff that people are paying attention. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting. And it should be fun. Anyway, I don't want to have a bad time. It's, it's part of itself. I want, I want to have fun. Were you thinking about having fun back then or were you just like, oh my God? I mean, now it's like, it, at this point, it's like, it, it, it's, you know, it's got to be fine. It's like, oh, why bother? We're adventure seekers. And there's no greater adventure than going in to make a record. Because right. you, you really don't know. You can I know 20 things you can do to make it more conducive, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I know you got to be ready to hit record and all that. But you really don't know where that moment of True inspiration is going to come. It takes something from being good, easy to make a good record. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a, that's a failure to, to make a great record. What? There's something extra that's got to happen, and nobody knows where that's going to come from. So I'm nervous before every session, but it's good nervous. It's like before a sporting event or something, if you're an athlete. Yeah. It always comes, but you never know from where, and you got to be ready to catch it. And uh, yeah. I don't think we've ever left the studio Empty hand. I can't remember session. Ending. Well, we got nothing. But I can remember times when it, it was really good, but not awesome. And you want yeah. to, you, you want to, you want to blow people away. And you, want, you gotta, you gotta get under the skin, man, and make them feel something. That's your responsibility. Yeah. As a musician, as a, as a record maker, you hire the right people. It's a good start because you, you, you don't know where you can get that fire. That lightning could come from, you know. Well, my favorite example. But I always involves you. And that was the session we did for Iggy. Oh, yeah. And we cut the John Hyatt song, which I can't remember the name of right now. And John was working in the next room over. Right? And so uh, Iggy said, oh, man, will you come in and, and, and play on the song? And, and he said, yeah, sure. But he came in late in the day. And he was clearly tired. And we were eating. And Iggy said, oh, man, don't. He was trying to be nice. Yeah, don't feel obligated like you got to stay. And, you know, and. And that's, and so John split and then he was feeling remorseful about having like the John think he really wanted to play because he really did want and his, and he was, it, it kind of crushed his spirit. So we went back out after dinner to, to cut the song and you could tell it, it would, the joy and the energy was drained from me and he wasn't getting it back and you were not going to accept that. And you started this song, something wild, and you started this song with so much energy, like so much that you changed the dynamic of the room, like everybody's mood changed. And it was, it was A, it was the take of the song. Oh, wow. And B, all we had to do was go back and get the first 15 seconds of Igni's vocal because 
you changed his mood around and, and turned him back into Iggy in 15 seconds just by changing the energy in the room. And that was the first example I had of how energy, your energy didn't stop at your skin. And you, you transcended the boundaries of skin and you reached out in the room and you changed everybody. And those are the people you want to be with on a session. Yeah. You know, that's, that's cool. That's what you hope. I mean, I wouldn't calculating it. I just, I just never say die. I wasn't going to see, you know, I probably noticed that everyone was flat. I just wasn't going to have it, you, you know. You were not I accepting. Think, I, I think that session, like with times I was wearing no shirt, duct tape my headphones onto my head. <laughs> and I remember it was Wadi Wattel and, and Charlie Drayden's playing bass. I remember Wadi turned around at one point, you know, Mr. Les Paul Marshall, mm -hmm. just, yeah, the boy's so loud. I just, what is wrong? man, the, the bleed through on that record, like, Home, which was the single. Yeah. And he was sitting right across from us. He was sitting right across from me. And you were playing really loud. Yep. And Dandle, that. and and he, he did a live vocal. And then it was just meant to be a guide vocal. But there was there was so much drums in his vocal mic that we thought, well, we better cut the vocal again. And when we cut it without drums, you know, when he'd overdone yeah. it, it went flat because the, the room sound of your oh, energy awesome. propelled the track. So we had to go with the live vocal and wow. it sounded, and that's, that's where all the magic happened. See, I was pissed in vinegar. I did the story, man. This is great. I love it. It's the first time I heard your voice. Hey, uh, Kenny, it's Don, Don Morris. So like, huh? Yeah, Don Morris from what's Don Morris. Oh, Don. I was just, hey, man. And you were telling me, I think this Bob Dylan record, would you like to play it? I went, what? Yeah, Bob Dylan. Then you call me back, I don't know, a couple of days later, just, yeah, Bob's not doing it now because he's on tour, correct me if I'm wrong, but I got this Iggy Pop record. And then you just flipped them and it was like, Iggy Pop. And I'm like, are you kidding? And then you, you, you wanted me, I had never met you, so you wanted me to come down to the record plant. So I go down to the record plant, I'm kind of all hyper and like, oh my God, this, I can't believe I'm doing Iggy Pop. And, um, I go off to Sweet Pea. Sweet Pea and who was the other background? Sir, Sir Scott. Can I tell you what happened? That's not what happened. Here's, oh, what, happened. Oh, <laughs> what, happened. Here's what happened. You came into the, the studio and, and I met you. And, I, and we went and we were so I did meet you first, but I didn't know it was you. No. Exactly. I didn't know it was you. We were sitting and talking for 15 minutes and I've been thinking, wow, this guy is like my brother, man. I just met him and I feel like I've known him all my life. And I could see after about 10 minutes, you're getting a little edgy. And you said, well, when's, when's Don getting here? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and you thought, because you, you knew that it was, wasn't, I was, you was, you'd seen the videos and you thought Sweet Pea was Don Mark. Yeah. Right? Well, do you so, remember what the Sweet Pea So you done with, I know Don Mark. I know Don Mark. And then I'm like, oh my God. And I, I remember looking over at you and you were laughing your ass off because you saw the whole thing. <laughs> it was, it was great. I thought you were a black man. <laughs> Which yeah. I, I didn't mind being confused with Sweet Pea. But oh, that's, that was the thing. Sweet Pea was, you know, sweet for him because he was the guy I wished I was. Oh, yeah. You know, he, well, he's he Mr. had the cool. voice I wished I had. Yeah. He was cool. I wished I had his coolness. He, he was the coolest. Man. Yeah. If he comes on top, he was the softest, sweetest man in the world. Yeah, that record. And then, the, and then <laughs> sure enough, then eventually we do the... Uh, do the Bob Dylan record, and, it, and uh, you're gonna have to tell me this way. So <laughs> you were challenged. How were you challenged on that record? Because it was like 
I was the only guy who played on every session. But you have some story that's like, he was, yeah, tell me, he was kind of messing with you. And so you went, oh, I, I don't know if he's messing. I think he wasn't totally together to make an album. Yeah, and organize yeah. songs for feeling that right, right? And he was working on the Wilburys at the same time. Ah, I didn't okay. realize until after we were done, right? So he, I said, well, let's get together and sing songs. And he said, no, I think no, because he didn't have, right, right. And, uh, really? <laughs> parents, I tell you what, we'll make it back here. I'm not going to tell you who's coming in to play him. That's it. And you don't tell me what song to That you heard it. So we surprised him every single day. Surprised me too. <laughs> oh my God. Every day, every day was it. And I should say it wasn't every, it was like a day and then we'd be off for a week, a month, maybe. Yeah. That, well, the tour. first session was we Stevie Ray Vaughan. Stevie Ray and Jim. Jimmy Vaughan. And David Lindley. Place. Yeah, David Lindley. <laughs> I should add that was in January. Yeah. And. Uh, you know, uh, Steve Ray Vaughan. Yeah, he uh, that, that short. That was that year he got in yeah. the plane. Back. Yeah, that was that was incredible. That was, and you and me and Jamie Mahoper. Yeah, Jamie. What's that song? Wiggle, wiggle or something. Yeah. Okay, so I, I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just like like a little cat. Look, look, look. And all of a sudden, Bob goes. First of all, he was two hours late. I'm sitting in the control. All of a sudden, somebody taps me on the shoulder. I turn around. It's Bob Dylan. He goes, Kenny, Bob Dylan. We turned around. That was the. Only words I had with him the entire album. Yeah. It was kind of like hot, holding bad. And so, uh, but then he goes to the piano and he starts playing. And I went, jump on the drums, Kenny, jump on the drums. I'm the only one in there playing with him. All of a sudden, was Ed Cherney mixing? Yeah. Ed was smart enough to hit record. Yeah. Hit record. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all the other guys come flying and all you guys come flying because we're playing. Yeah. And obviously that wasn't the tape because, you know, but then we did it right away, and that, that's the way it worked with Dylan, right? Yeah. Well, you got to be ready to roll with him. He's a master of feel, right? He knows when it feels good. Yeah. I'm not you know, quite sure how you get there. I said, because nobody, you know, saying it's an adventure. Yeah. And you come in hoping to, to catch it. Yeah. But when he's got it, you got you to gotta roll tape yeah. and catch it. Yeah. With a very short time, you know, you're winning. You win two Grammys. You're doing Nicky Pop, Bob Dylan. Then all of a sudden... The phone was ringing. You hired me to do Bob Seeger, who's the god of Detroit, where you grew up. Then Elton John. I forgot about it. I, you know something? When I was driving here, that was, I made a list yeah. of the records we made, like, back to back. You can remember? I, 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 I forgot Elton. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> I, got, yeah, you, I got Iggy Pop, Bob Dylan, Michelle Shock. Yeah. That was a really good record. Yeah. Neil Diamond, Bob Seeger, B.B. King, Delbert McClinton, Glenn Fry, Johnny Clegg. Garth Brooks did the whole Rhythm Country Blues album. With oh, that West. was insane. That was insane, man. Dude, that's a good thing they had budgets. Yeah. That's the uh, Al Toller was the producer. And we would, uh, like, I'd want, like, Conway Twitty's last performance before yeah. he died and Conway with and Sam. Sam Moore during a rainy night in Georgia. Yeah. And they're improvising about, I'll see you in heaven and stuff. I still see Sam Moore. He's like, yeah. Yeah. no, that was a, incredible. B.B. King with George, George Jones. Bruce. It was basically Nashville and Memphis. Coming together, those two worlds, right? Your yeah. soul, soul singers and country singers showing that the scope of human emotion is the same for everybody. That it, the differences between soul music and and country music, and therefore cultures behind them, very slim differences had subtle nuances and phrasing, really. And and at first when we started the record, the first one we cut was Gladys Knight, still doing old time stuff, right? And it was like. 
this is going to work. And then after like the first 10 seconds, of course, this is going to work. And it was easy and it was fun. But I remember one afternoon we did Travis Tritt and, uh, and Patty LaBelle in Nashville. In Nashville. And then the same day we Little Richard. Yeah, we did Little Richard. Tanya Tucker, yep. which was dynamic. And Alan Toussaint and Chet Atkins, two of the greatest producers of all time, are the artists, and, and we're producing a record there. In Nashville, right? In Nashville. Nashville. It was at uh, Sound of Board. Yeah. yeah. Then we went to New Orleans, did Aaron Neville and Trisha Hewer. We filmed crews, you yeah. know. There was a PBS special. It fell between the cracks of all radio stations. It was neither country, nor was it R&B. Did it get played? It didn't get played that much, but the PBS special, it sold like three... Three, four million records from QBS playing during Pledge Week. PBS has done some, you know, they made Joe Bonamassa. Yeah. yeah. That's an incredible story. PBS, yeah. wow. Um, oh, there's okay. more. Another one was uh, on that one was Mavis Staples and Ooh, Marty and Stewart. Marty Stewart doing with Pop Stewart. Staples. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Uh, 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 it was uh, on the way. Yeah. Which the Staples had sung in the last waltz. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, the yeah. list. Yeah, I'm good. There's Richie Sambora, who we had so oh many great God. adventures yeah. with. Oh my Joe, God! Joe Cocker, Eddie Smythe, Waylon Jennings, Christopherson, Jesus, uh, the Highwaymen, which is yeah, Waylon's Billy, Johnny Cash, and Christopherson, Superdoll, Velcro, Superstar, yeah, yeah. Westerberg. We did a Travis Tritt album together, and that's just that's just what I could remember at traffic lights. Yeah, and I forgot about Elton John. And Travis Tritt, I was flying in and out of a folk detour. And this is when, once again, budgets. I'd come in and do, Travis is incredible. What a what, what sonically, his voice. Yeah, that's a great record. Did we do uh, 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 David Crosby and Nash yeah. down there? No, we did David Crosby. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. With Bernie. Uh, Bernie Thompson. Oh, see there? No, about Bernie. Bernie. Oh, Bernie Ledden. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, we did. We did like two or three songs on uh, Crosby's album, A Thousand Roads. Did Jimmy they? Webb came in and played piano. Did that ever come out? Yeah, yeah, dude. They, I mean, that's like that's insane. I know that isn't that weird. And Elton, dude, that was crazy. That was for a box set. And Elton eventually they uh, they asked me to go on tour, and I turned it down because I was not ready to leave Melody. Mm-hmm. And I remember I would, we'd play at the Forum, sold out. You know how you see know how the Melody it was crazy back then. Yeah. We were flying around in private jets and stayed at Ritz Carlton's, and it was just wild, you know. And um, Bernie comes up to me. It was at the end, right as posters were about to go on stage. This is craziness. Everybody's there, you know, and uh, just, I can't believe I got you album tour and you turn it down. And I'm like, I, don't, I can't believe it. I was freaking, but I said, hey, hey, Bernie, come here. And I said, look at this, 360 degrees. When I walk on stage, man, I feel like I'm Keith Richards in this band. I'm not just the guy in the back. I'm like, this, every song I'm playing, I record it. And it's, you know, people, you know, my dude, Jack and Diane, the whole place, Aerodrome's. It's kind of hard to walk away. I say, by the way, why'd you come tonight? He came to see this. Uh, he went, okay, I get it. But that is one of my one of my few things that I, I thought I have a regret, but I wish I could have done it. Well, I can't do everything. We made the right decisions because we're both still here, man. You know? There you go. Down. He's funny, Elton John. I was doing, I did the Smashing Publicans, the door tour, and I'm, uh, we were like all over the world in two seconds, and I'm in we're Nashville at the Fox Theater, which you know, we've done stuff there. Pete. At the Greg Allman tribute, which was one of the greatest, greatest events. And so I'm there with the Palm and they filmed it that night. And it's on both those things, John. You can see and watch them on YouTube. Anyway, I'm laying down sleeping uh, after sound check, and someone says, 
Hey, uh, Elton, John, Elton John wants to see. I went, bullshit. So I suppose Elvis is out there too. Mm-hmm. And I, I go back to sleep. And he says, uh, Elton John says, what's here? Let's go down there. And he was living in Atlanta. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. And he's there. And when I walked on stage, he says, hey, Kenny, I'm going to be on the side of stage. Don't fuck up. What you Elton John saw you. And, you know, I was still young enough to worry about don't yeah. fuck up with Elton John. <laughs> I just had to play with weird. We played a Radio City Music Hall. And Ron Carter shit about 10 feet. Oh, away. Jesus. The most recorded jazz bass player in the world, right? Just the greatest of them all. And then sitting right there. I'm playing upright. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, I mean, what's it like? I mean, I mean, what was it like when all of a sudden? It's, I mean, I used to see you smile all the time. Like, I can't believe it. At least that's what it looked like. I can't believe this is happening to me. Yeah. And you're the... Yeah, I mean, you're not just a player, man. I mean, I was like excited. Oh my God, I'm playing with the Rolling Stones, mm-hmm. you know, which you facilitated. But what's it like when you're the producer and you have to talk to like Bob Seeger when you were in your diapers and he was having hits, you know, or Joe Cotter or the Rolling Stones? I had one moment when we did the Bob Dylan market under the red sky and you're doing, we cut the track and, and then uh, he brought George Harrison and said, we can Tarson. So, oh, wow. Scott. So, George Harrison. This is like 1990? Yeah, 89. It's just when you started. This, yeah. And I, to, t- to be honest with you, probably could have used another couple of years. Just, yeah. I could have done it. That's what I'm saying. That's my whole point. I wasn't quite ready, but there I was, right? And it was my lifetime dream. So, here's one of the Beatles coming in. He says, don't let Bob do what he did last time, which is to uh, just like roll the tape and keep my first tape and that, and he wouldn't let me do a second. He said, all right, don't worry. But Bob heard that. So Bob made Ed, Ed Churning get up out of the engineer's seat. He sat down there at the auto locator. And he, did, he didn't play the song for George. He fast-forwarded to where the solo was. And he said, okay, play. Didn't tell him. He never heard the song. Didn't tell him what key it was in. And George hadn't tuned his guitar. And George was like scrambling to, to play something. And all things considered, it was pretty decent. It was out of tune. And so, did you keep that? Bob said, okay, that's great. Thank you, man. And George was like flabbergasted. He, he wasn't going to let Bob Dylan bite him twice. Right? So he said, he turns to me and he says, well, what do you think, Don? Oh, and and Bob Dylan goes, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> and time kind of froze. You know, get it. He slowed down yeah. and their voices dissolved into reverb. And when I flashed on, flashed on the time that I was going to sell my car so I could go to the concert for Bangladesh, Madison Square Garden. Now these two guys sitting as close as you are asking me what I think. And it was, I was terrified, you know, like, yeah. how do you, have, and then a voice like went off in my head and the voice said, he's not paying you to be a fan. That, that did it. So I snapped out of it. I mean, it was only like a second, but it felt like, yeah, I was sitting there for 20 minutes, right? Freaking out. And I said, well, you know, it was good, George, but I mean, let's tune up and see if you beat it. And George said, thank you. Um, gave the chair back to Ed. <laughs> and what I learned from that is tell the truth, but yeah, don't be a dick about it. Treat musicians the way you'd want to treat them. Musicians are a sensitive lot. Yeah. You know, if if you start thinking that people don't like what you're playing, it it's start to rot performance. So you have to keep keep it positive, keep it fun, and be encouraging. That's one of your biggest skills is that you have these incredible communicating skills. You understand people. And, you know, it's people skills. But, like, yeah, in our business, you know, musicians are 
not the average, you know, with emotions and that's what makes him special. But on the other hand, yeah, you could blow a whole session by pissing somebody off. Just, you know, I've had it happen to me, man. You had it? I have had it happen to me. Just where I was playing bass on something. I can't remember. I think it was my own record. The take finishes and there's nothing. Excitements. And then, and then a long, long pause. And then, uh, let's try another one. No direction. What do you think? I thought that was. I Is this true. when you're out in the room? Yeah, I was out in the room. That's the worst yeah. thing. That's the worst thing, right? The worst thing. So that that pretty much, A, it cost me, uh, I, I lost respect for the producer yeah. at, at that moment. You know, so, oh, yeah. This totally. guy is probably ordering food. That's probably, he probably wasn't paying attention. But he had nothing. No, he couldn't direct me at anything. So I, I made it a point. Well, you, you know, I, I like to sit in the room with the musicians. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Right there. We can talk to each other. Yeah. But if I have to be in the control room, I like to ride the talk back button so that it's conversational always. And, and. And at least let someone up that I heard what they were doing. I understand what they're doing. Some direction. I was right around them to say, uh, try another one. I said, let's try another one with this. Uh, you know. And I feel you on that one, man. I'll tell you what, that, that, that will drive me nuts when you just poured your guts out. And I noticed the big transition when it went from tape to Pro Tools because the people that started using Pro Tools and budgets went away. You get people that became experts on Pro Tools and engineering with nobody in the room. Mm -hmm. They're doing editing. Mm -hmm. So they have no skill between where they are and the other yeah. side of the glass. Yeah. So I just noticed it. And I mean, I a couple of years ago, I did a Triumph uh, tribute record with Mike Clink. He understands it because he came from that world of tape and tape communicate. But when he went there, uh, uh, I don't know what he was doing. And the Pro Tools guy, his assistant, no comment. You just crushed it. Well, you just gave your gut out, you know, gave your, you gave all your emotions out in that take. You want to hear somebody talk to you immediately. And that will kill a session faster than anything. But I mean, this you, know, crazy. you know when you got to the place of truth, you know, where you stopped thinking about what the chords were, what is or what the yeah. meter is or whatever. And it just started flowing out of you when I think. And it was relaxed and you were in there and it was expressive. That doesn't mean it was necessarily perfect, but you know when you got when you hit that point. Yeah. And if other people aren't we're supposed to be charged, don't hear that. It's deflating and it's terrible. Quick way to blow a session. I, most frustrating thing, and you're great at this. You just understand people, you understand music from all kinds of genres. You just get it. You just you kind of a, you should be a producer because you're great communication skills. You make people feel comfortable. You get the most out of them because you're just treating them and from the human standpoint. You know how to get them to feel comfortable, and that's where the genius it bubbles up under you know the water. And uh, and I mean, I can only imagine. I, mean, I think it was 1994 was the first time you worked in the Rolling Stone, which is only four years after you got a Grammy, and all of a sudden now you got the Rolling Friggin' Stones. And okay, it was another. This was the second. Which is the which is the bad one. I know. This is a crazy time for me because I. And rehearsing with John Fogarty to go out on tour to do the Credence catalog that he wouldn't do for 20 years. Mm -hmm. You know the story, how yep. he wouldn't play. What is that story? He, was it he and Bob Dylan and George Harrison were playing the Palomino or something? You know that story? And and, and all, everybody had to do one of their songs. And John said, oh, I don't do my song. And it was either Dylan or George Harrison said, hey, dude, if you don't throw Pirate Pirate of Mary, they're going to think uh, Tina Turner wrote it. And it sounds like a Dylan thing. Yeah. And that's John went, ding. Well, anyway, I'm doing John Fogarty rehearsal from 12 to 6. Then I drive over into the valley 
uh, and do Roy Bittens producing an artist from uh, Boston from 7 to 11. And then you had called me up, or I called you up because I was in town. I said, hey, man, come over to Ocean Way. So what's going on? I says, I'm producing the Stones again. So I show up at midnight. First time I ever showed up. And they're just getting started. We're getting started. All right, so Kellner introduces me to uh, Charlie. Charlie's doing a record in Studio 2 back in the back. He's doing a jazz record with Kellner saying, yeah. Hi, I'm kidding, man. He does some weird place buckets and all kinds of weird stuff. So I go, yeah. So I go back there. So I start showing up every night at midnight. You just have a little dinner. You know, so it's like a chaos everywhere. You know, you know how it is. And uh, it, I, I start doing Charlie's record. And then, and it, it, correct me if I'm wrong. It's like Mick is doing like Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And well, Keith is doing Tuesday, Thursday. It wasn't that organized. They <laughs> 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 were worse than that. But my point is that they were not recording the, as a song. separation, which you can hear in the record. It's not, it's, a, it's got its moments. There's some really great stuff. To me, it was a divided experience. Not that uh, like Booty Lounge or Little Lonesome or Big Bang, you know, but those things went them together. When we were doing Bigger Bang, we, we decided we'd do it real low key. So we went to this place in Mix in the countryside in France. And it's just uh, it's Chris Sharma, who's engineering at that time, me and Pierre, guitar tech. Yeah. And uh, Mick, Keith, and Charlie. That was it. No, no assistants, no friends, no nothing. We were wow. We were focused on the thing. And we were eating meals together. So at night, I was reading uh, Phil Jackson's book. Yeah, the basketball of Sacred Hoops. Yeah. yeah. And it was about his experience coach, coaching the Bulls and continues comparing it to Virgin yeah. Foley and Shaq. And he talked a lot about his triangle defense, which involved complete teamwork. It was yeah, trying to squelch superstars yeah. and have everyone play together from the team and pass. Yeah, so it hit me. Wait a minute, it's a five-man basketball team. It's kind of like the same thing as in the Rolling Stones. It's like a rock and roll. Yeah. You should tell them two guards, yeah. forwards, two guitar yeah, yeah. players, and makes the center. And started seeing all these parallels in the way Phil was coaching these winning teams. So I started reading to them passages from Phil Jackson during meals. Which they fucking hated. <laughs> they, they didn't want to hear it, but they knew it. They knew it was right. You know, and I just kept saying, look, you know, I saw Kobe score 70 points, Lakers lose. And at whatever it was, 2004, and they, uh, the Pistons were in the finals. They lost, but they were in the finals. And they were a team without a superstar, but a great passing team. Pistons. And, and so I was watching but they the beat everybody up. The bluffest team in history. This was this was later. This was later. That, that was yeah. more like the nineties. Yeah, yeah. So they just beat the crap out of you. But they passed. Yeah. So they, they knew what I was trying to say, but I, I really believe that. Yeah. yeah. That that fans are better when they are. Of course. When the the whole is always greater than some parts. That's right. Why teams win Super Bowls? It's not the individual. It applies to every aspect of life. And I think that's one of the reasons why people uh, love rock and roll bands because they can relate to it. If, if you can, if you can see Mick and Keith hug on stage and you know about all the yeah. fighting. Yeah. 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 And then they're under the yeah. for some of those years and yet they still love each other and they still go out and play together. That sends a really strong message to people. 
Yeah. In a divided society like this. Yeah. But matter, red state, blue state. Come on, man. We're all brothers. Let's let's get in there and, and work together. And that's the thing. Or even just on your family level, man. Yeah. If making teeth, yeah, get along, man. I can call my brother and make yeah, 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 up, yeah. you know, haven't spoken to him for 30 years yeah. or whatever. You know, you you see this, it's a great uh, uh it's a great example. It's a universal language, is yeah. people con- communicating, connecting, even if you're not conscious of it. Yeah. I think you go like I know, I know that feeling. Mm-hmm. It's just, you're absolutely right. It's just, I'm just saying it a different way than you did. That's, um, that's heavy. I mean, there's so much, so much about music. It's just amazing. That, that Souls record, I mean, the Bridges of Babylon, didn't it? And you guys had all kinds of people like Wadi was there yet. Stones brought in all kinds of people for inspiration, right? With uh, quote unquote inspiration. Oh, yeah, just there, that, there were a lot of people there. There was a lot of shit. I remember you told me, you yeah. said to Mick, why'd you get rid of all this jingle? And he just, this is the way the Rolling Stones world works. And you know, I didn't argue with him. We, we came up with something. It's a pretty good record. Yeah. And there's some, there's some great things on that record. My, my favorite thing I ever caught with them is on that record. It's a song of Keith called How Can I Stop? Yeah. And we cut it in the last hour of what we thought was the last session. It was about 4 a.m. In fact, Charlie had a car waiting in the alley. He was going to take him to the airport. He's going back to London. Wow. Well, we're dark, right? And... We get to the song. It's a beautiful song. And Keith's singing live. And there are all these, like Keltler was playing on it too. And uh, he plays bass. Was the guy playing yeah. with Tom Waits? And uh, he was playing, he was playing the string bass. I was playing a world of Blondie Chapman. Was yeah. And uh, grand piano. Bob Ronnie was there. But it's all live. And we get to the end. And you can hear it on the record. We, we thought it was done. But Charlie knows it's the end of the thing. And he's... He doesn't end the song. He goes into this big flourish. And all of a sudden, it kind of turns into the beginning of Love Supreme. And Wayne Shorters, Wayne was he's out into this whole other thing. That's an adjunct to the song. And it builds to this crazy climax. And, and I thought, while we're doing that, I thought, oh my God, this is, this is the last song the Rolling Stones are ever going to cut. This is like the coda to this album. I just had a feeling like this is, this is the way you end the rise, the whole thing. We were back recording a week later. Yeah. Washington. That's a chart from just 30 years ago. It's our phone. But it was recorded to that. Yeah. Album yeah. In terms of it's the last thing you hear on the record. And that's my favorite thing I've got. Wow. How can I stop? How can I stop? You told me this. I think you sound like, hey, man, you told uh, Mick, hey, man, right? These guys got to play together. You're the Stones. You're not a band if you don't play together. And then we ended up in the back room. One day it was four in the morning and there was, everybody was there and they were trying to figure out the headphone thing. And it was, I, I was, thank you very much because, yeah, and I, was, I mean, there's Charlie right there. It is me. And I was doing this score. I had a gore with a brush. Yeah. What song was that? I can't remember the name of it, but I remember that. Yeah. And I can't remember if Mick was playing acoustic or whether it was Keith. It was Mick. It was Mick's. Okay. So Mick's check song. this out. Mick comes up to me. It was like, Mick's playing acoustic. I'm playing this gourd with a brush and, and Charlie's playing high hat. This is one of the most cool things I've ever heard a lead singer say to me about a drummer. Lead singer, uh, you know, Mick Jagger, comes up to me and says, hey, mate, I like what you're doing, but don't get in the way of Charlie's hi-hat. And what that told me was Mick is the lead singer, but he values every, you know, like especially Keith and Charlie, that's the sound of the stones. So he's got this big picture of everything we've been talking about. And he was aware yeah, you know, this is cool, but that, that's the Stones. And, of course, I got mixed out of that song. <laughs> that, 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 
But I'll never forget that. I was like, wow, that is, I didn't think, oh man, don't tell me what to do. I'm thinking like, that is so cool. You're aware of what he's doing. When you, I mean, I've gotten to play bass with him a lot. Yeah. And, um, but you become aware of that you really can't pick up on. You can once you know it here and you feel it anyway. And if you can't quite identify, I said, when they play together, it's like a jocular conversation. They're having fun and it's relaxed. And, and Keith will hear Charlie do something on the high hair and we'll make him play something that'll make Nick sing a certain yeah. way that'll make Charlie play something else on the high end. And it's all this back and forth. It, remind, it reminded me of, you know, in the baseball game, when right before the inning starts, they have like three or four balls out and, and they're all just like passing ball. Yeah, yeah. Just warming up their arms for the, for the, yeah, the pitching. Yeah. I forgot the name. That's what the Stones do, but they like just lop some right action so you can snack it out of there. Right. And the interplay is what it's all about. The, the conversation that takes place here yeah. is what makes the Stones great. And the best songs have that conversation. Even if you do overdubs, it's still that conversation is what makes them so Yeah, and it's, it's amazing. Well, so like, okay, so you, uh, back in Detroit, you grew up in Detroit, obviously. And there was something in high school, you had like this band where you were the singer and the guitar player in a band called the Saturns? Oh, yeah, well, it's Paul. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. I said then. Yeah. So you started off playing guitar and singing and then switched to bass? Yeah. I mean, I started out, you and I are the same age. Yeah. And we were 12 years old when we saw the Beatles on that song. Oh, I was a little bit young. I think it was like 10 years old. When you were 53. All right. So I'm 52. Yeah. I was 12. I'm saying that because I tell everybody I was 10, so I just want to make sure. Okay, so they're doing a fact check. <laughs> whatever age, I, whatever year I was born, I saw him when I was 10. Because it sounds good. Is, guys our age, there's yeah. a whole lot of musicians exactly our age. Oh, yeah. And we looked at that and we thought, wait, these girls are screaming. Yeah. They look like they're having a ball. They look cool as fuck. You know, it was just like, I want to do that. Yeah. Right? But, and if you're a little Love older, if you're, we're 16, when we saw that, we might think, I want to do that, but. I probably should get my teaching certification. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And if you're younger, it didn't register with you. Yeah. So there was no, there was no internet. There was no video games. There was nothing. It was play stickball outside or something. So I started a band and I, and there were just better guitar players than me. And then I noticed that Paul McCartney was playing a guitar with four strings. No, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. So they should bass guitar. All right. I got that. So then I auditioned for a band. Well, I was like 13 years or something like that. And, and the guy came over, they were old, and they were, I was like in seventh grade, they were in ninth grade, right? Ron Lefkoe came over and was trying to be in the shy guys. I was in They were looking for a bass player. So he said, let's do walk over run. He came up to my bedroom. And so I took my guitar and I was very careful to only play on the lower four string. Oh, but I was yeah. playing the chords. And, um, and he said, all right, great. Yeah, I know you know the chords to walk over and now will play the bass player. I said, well, I am. I'm playing on, I'm not playing the top two strings. And, and Ron Lefko explained what bass playing was. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get that gig, but I wasn't going to let that dog play me twice. <laughs> so oh my I, God. I did look around and there were like great guitar players in my school. They were great keyboard. So it's primarily a keyboard. Everyone was better than me. So I will learn bass. I'll play all the time. That's incredible. I love that. Your dad, my dad, both won World War II. Yeah. Okay. So. This, I, I respect that whole generation, and I'm so grateful that, that my dad was experienced that because 
Um, there was discipline, a foundation. There was respect. There were rules, but yet they were liberal. And but I was going to ask you: Did you have any conflict with your dad? Because here he is, infantry guy fighting for the free world, and all of a sudden you're protesting Vietnam and dressing up as a hippie and rebel, rebel, and you're going into music. And did he ever go like, "Hey, hey dude, uh, want, how about you know going to business or going to something else?" Was there ever that? No. Mm, my folks are great, man. Yeah, yeah. I had a feeling. My dad was, was just cool and accepting. It, he knew it was a risky business. And uh, I had a rough time getting started. And I didn't really have any real success until I was in my late 30s. Isn't that great? Well, in retrospect, it's great. <laughs> it wasn't so great at the time. And and he never uh, didn't turn me down. I needed loans. Back That's in condition. That's heavy, man. Uh, yeah, he's great. So uh, I always had support from him. I never had, I didn't have to, you know, yeah. I mean, we would discuss Vietnam, never got heated. The the thing is, when you look back on it now, when you read the history of the era, Lyndon Johnson didn't even know the truth about what was going on. No, the wow. generals, the, the army, no one told him the truth. So they were just giving him, wow. I figured he knew exactly. No, no, he was misinformed about Gopatankin and all this wow. and his, he made these calls based on bad, bad information that they were deliberately feeding to him. Yeah. So Lyndon Johnson didn't know. I had some 18-year-old motherfucker in Ann Arbor who wants, just wants to throw rocks through the window. No, you know, so yeah. uh, I believe in retrospect how we happened to come down on the right side of the issue. I think history yeah. very much acknowledges that. I no one what they were talking about. And, I, and my heart bleeds, man, for all, all the kids who uh, went there to fight. You know, when I see them now, they they paid a heavy. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. What was your draft number? Sixty nine. Nice number. I like that one. I'd be proud of that one. <laughs> well, I I'd say you got the best number in the deck. Just foretold great things to come. How did? So they, they, was that an exemption number? Like you do, you, you can't go. No. Uh, How did you got out legally? Uh, with I got out legally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my number one? Not necessarily, honestly. You know, well, I didn't want to go, man. I didn't want to go. Oh, no. Well, yeah. at that point, it, it was it was long ago. At that point, it was just, I was the last draft. Yeah. The one after yours. My number was two. Now, and I have a twin brother. And the wild things, my birthday's March 7th. The first number that they picked, Nixon pulled it out of the, you know, the, the ping pong ball, March 6th. And we go, oh, oh that was close. Next one, March 7th. So, you know, me, smart ass, I'm singing to my mom, well, I'm in the army now, but my mom, that's not funny. <laughs> she, here's my point. Oh, you and your brother got the same numbers. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So we got papers. You know, I had, uh, John had surgerized me. So it was basically, you know, he, he can't fight because his knee's a mess. I had allergies. We turned it into, uh, I'm going to sneeze in the Viet Cong. I'm going to know where we are. going to give away our position. It's really be not good for him. The dynamic was, so my mom was there's no freaking way my boys are going to that war and we're moving to Canada. She's saying to my dad, Art, we're moving to Canada and we, I need more, I need a response from you. It was, I think it was confusing a little bit, not confusing, but my dad was like, he didn't believe in the war at that point, but he had just fought in World War II and he believed in the service. He believed in you do uh, the right thing for your country. It's our obligation. You know, that he was on the fence. Yeah. He, I, so he kind of was silent about it. I don't think he believed in the war because he was very in, into, I think he probably saw what was happening. 
And so that was interesting, dynamic. Yeah, it was a crazy time, man. You know, it was way crazier than that, too, if you think about it. All of a sudden, our heroes died. We had Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and Hendrix died, yeah. which was like, not to mention presidents dying, like JFK and Bobby. But when we lose your heroes, you know, 27, yeah. we're like, not to mention Martin Luther King either. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like, it was, it was a crazy, it was crazy times, right? As I get older, I'm, I know that I did the right thing, but I'm not necessarily proud of it. Mm. It's a weird thing. Uh, yeah. We shouldn't have been no. older. You did a lot of nah, things. There's no point in it. I heard a lot of folks, and I'm not sure about the reason. Most wars are sort of pointless. World War II wasn't, because we literally, it was a free world against, you know, dictatorship, you know? So you had that, you know, and we stayed out of as much as we could until it became apparent that if we don't, you know, that there's got subs right outside New York and Louisiana or wherever. But the thing is, it was like, it was coming to us. And then when Japan, of course, invaded, it did come to us. And so it was a world war and everybody had to get involved one way or another. We didn't have a choice. Uh, some of these smaller wars, you know, it's, you know, who knows why they're doing it. But so, yeah, it yeah, wasn't. That's like, a weird thing, man. I, I run into a lot of guys here who went. And they, they paid a heavy toll, and they went in with the right intention. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And so I'm, I'm glad I didn't go. Yeah, um, and I, I feel for the guys that I got your next things. I'm not, let's just say I'm not proud. I don't. Yeah, yeah. It. Oh no, you, you got to do what you got to do. The reality is this: man. at that point, the soldiers involved, killing the officers, fragging the officers, and yeah. So if you really didn't want to go, they didn't want you. It yeah. wasn't that hard to get out. Yeah, no. Uh, uh, they didn't want any more troublemakers because even the, the they wanted people who really wanted soldiers for yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, uh, back to Detroit. <laughs> I mean, okay. So I, I just this is just a short list, but uh, I mean the, the bands that came out of the culture was so amazing back then. The bands that came out of there, you know, I mean, it's just so the dichotomy of like you've got like. Kid Rock to Bob Singer, you got Stevie Wonder, you know, to, um, you know, Grand Trunk, Claro, to Rita Franklin, to the MC5, Marvin Gaye, to Eminem, Alice Cooper, to the yeah. Supreme, to Smokey Robinson, to the White Stripes, Ziggy Pop, to Glenn Fry, which I didn't know he came from there, yeah. Al Green, to Madonna, Mitch Ryder, Detroit, Wilson, Bill Haley, in the comments, just to name the few, I mean, it's like, what a cesspool, I mean. That must have had a huge cesspool. There, there must be a better word than that. <laughs> well, I, um, I owe it to people not to let that slide. <laughs> Let's call it a mixing pot. Okay, a mixing pot, a melting pot. A melting pot. Yeah. A melting pot. <laughs> uh, some cesspools. <laughs> a melting pot of like talent and influence. I mean, so that was what a great place to come from. It was a great place to come from. It was because. After World War II, there were all these jobs there. All the yeah. auto factories actually in the city of Detroit. So people, and during World War II, they were making yeah. the millet. Yeah. They, they took the whole plant, mile-long plant. But there, there were jobs. Yeah. So people came from all over the yeah. country, actually from all over the world, to, to fill those jobs. Really? Wow. And they brought their cultures with them. So you had this incredible rainbow of flavors to choose from. And, and yes, there was racism. And yes, there was red lighting. Was, but you still... Got to absorb all the cultures and, yeah. and compared to today, people really got along relatively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so you, you could draw on all of that. There's also something about a city that's a one industry city, Detroit. The whole economy, my parents are both teachers, right? But if 
the auto sales were down. They'd lay off workers and the workers would have to move away and find other jobs. And they'd take the kids with us. Enrollment would go down in school. So teachers would get laid off. Oh, wow. would get laid off. And waitresses would get laid off. You know, it's so all based the on the economy of the city was based on the auto business. So there was really no point in putting on any airs about how successful you were. Everyone was in the same boat. And your, your fate was tied to the success or failure of the auto business. As a result, like no one, I never knew anyone who went out rented a Mercedes to impress people. You oh, know, yeah. you know I, I never, I never saw a limo. Man. I saw them, there was one maybe parked at the airport. <laughs> I, just, I went to my, my whole childhood, never saw a limousine yeah. or anything like that. When everyone's in the same boat and there's no point in putting on any airs, you get a very honest culture, really honest. There's no, there's no reason to bullshit anybody because no one's going to believe you anyway. You all run together. So the music reflects the music that, come, that came from Detroit, raw and soulful. John Lee Booker, to me, is the epitome of what Detroit music is all about. But you can hear that in Mitch Ryder. You can hear that in all the Fortune records that made that. You can hear that. You can hear that in the Motown. Oh, you know, compare the, the sound of them and the feel of them to the New York R&B with Christian. It's honest and real. The MC5, Stooges. Not to mention all the great jazz that came out of Detroit. I mean, from Yusuf Latif and Joe Henderson, Donald Byrd and Ron Carter, Paul Chambers and Elvin Jones. Wow. They were all out of Detroit? Oh, man. The, the, that was one of the things I discovered when I first got to Blue Note was that it's a really inordinate number of Detroit musicians. There's not the number two but, city doesn't, I think, is in Newark or something. Then you come close to come all the people. Look at, I mean, sure. it's the names I mentioned. It's like, what? Out of one one little place? Yeah. So the, I think it's, it's it's because it was a, the culture was rich. Mm-hmm. And um, and also, you if you're in the middle of the country, you're like separated from trend and fashion. So you're not speaking by the game operator where people sit around the table and you whisper something. And by the time it gets around to the 10th person, it's turned into something completely yeah. different. It's what musically was happening in Detroit. All the fashionable music was going from the coasts. Time it got to Detroit to change two or three times. So wow. like Motown, one way of looking at it is that they were primarily jazz musicians, not R&B musicians, right. who listened to the New York records, got it a little bit wrong. Yeah. Which is how so many great things happen. Yeah, yeah. Not just in Detroit. Turns into something else. You, you turn it into something else. And so being outside of the fashion centers, it made the music that came out of Detroit a little bit different, whether that was the soul music, whether it was the rock and roll, whether it was the jazz. Well, a lot of country came out. Yeah. What about now? I mean, it's not, it's, it's, a, it's changed now. I mean, you, you still got Kid Rock, you got Eminem, you got this stuff, but it's not, well, I mean, everything changes. There are all kinds of bands. I spend a lot of time there. And I love what they're on this. It's still got the, the honesty and the grit of a real place. That's why I like that. It's pop- do you go there more and more now? Yeah, I do, I do live radio shows. Do you do it live there in Detroit? Whenever I can. Yeah, that's the night I'm doing it live from... Uh, so that you have to do it on the road, right? I've done it from... Uh, I did one from Cape Town, South Africa last year using my hotspot on the... Uh, oh, yeah, on the phone? That must have made your drive. bill look good. It, bill... You've now run out of it. <laughs> so, wow. What's that radio show? I haven't heard it. Uh, is it uh, just playing music and, and deep cuts? It's deep cuts. 
it's a wide range of stuff. What happened was I was in high school in the sixties and there was a jazz drummer named Bud Spangler and he had a show on the station WDBT, which is the NPR station. He had a show on at that time. And that was the only show when you could hear Sun Ra or Albert Eidler or, or, or the deep Coltrane cuts, you know, that kind of Bud Spangler would play it. And he was a jazz drummer. He was a good drummer. And uh, I just thought he was this motherfucker around, you know? So a vibe when I was, you know, 17, so someday I want to have that show. Wow. So five years ago, I went up to dinner with a good friend of mine who's a DJ on that station, Anne Parisi, one of the great broadcasters in Detroit for a while. And uh, I was just going on about how lucky she was to be on WDET. And, uh, and I told her about my dream. I have a Bud Spangler show. I said, I would quit my job at Blue Note if I could have a Bud Spangler show. You don't have to do that. <laughs> you want to do a show in that slot? We, we can do that. So I do it with her. We've been on for over uh, two years. And we do two hours. And I try to respect. It's not a jazz show. Although I'm playing yeah. Coltrane and Miles. And I, I just mix it up. That's incredible. Oh, my God. So the show's been around. That station's survived. Yeah. Been around. Yeah. And, and now and, you're. And we do it. It's very much like playing concert. And. But for a whole lot of people, there's more people than I could sell tickets to listen to it. Why? That's right? the beauty. Yeah. And and we do it live. We don't like keep our bits and then someone edits them in. We we play the records and listen to them while they're going down, like real radio. Yeah. And we we take calls and that kind of thing. So it, it feels it's very community and real and live. And I just like it. And you construct it like a live performance, you know, you, I, I try to think about building. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, the song selections like the show. Yeah. Well, what do you do when you're in Cape Town? You don't have a record player there. I mean, you, we do it. Yeah. We do it. And P3, I'll, I'll just send yeah. you a file. She, if I'm not there, she, I mean, even if I'm there, she runs the board and she does these great crossfades. She why by and, uh, and, and we look at each other on Zoom and we're great oh, friends. Right. So we have fun, you know, and we just. It's so cool, man. Yeah, I love doing it. So, it, okay. The, I'll, you know, obviously, what's not was was your get all these bands from, and then all of a sudden you create what's not was with David. Mm -hmm. And um, is that okay? First of all, you get you did like four albums. You had, you know, obviously the big hit that you had was you know Walk the Dinosaur. You know, um, is that what um, what's not was the thing that got you to L.A.? Yeah, I, I think you could say that you were producing what's not was right. Yeah, we, we were, it was a producer's band, you know, we, you know, we played on it, but we weren't the singers, we wrote, we wrote and produced. Yeah. And that's actually how I got started producing it. Right. right. There's right. an A&R guy named Gary Gersh. I know Gary. You're fun. So, oh my God. He He's Detroit too? Records. What's that? Is he Detroit? No, but he, he said we, we, our second album was on Geffen Records. Oh, okay. And Gary worked there, right? He might have worked there. I can't remember exactly what it was, but he, what he did was he noted, everyone watched with the, I don't even think David Geffen, we were on the label. It looked <laughs> like we had the seal of approval yeah, okay. to be on Geffen. So he said, well, wait a minute. These guys just producing, right? And get different singers. They could do that with anybody. So he was the first guy to hire me to produce a, 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 what's an American artist. I did some producing gigs in England. You, you obviously had the, um, the band was and was, and, and that's where you started producing. And then how did you get to L.A., you know? Was that the thing that went, let's, we, we need to move to LA and try producing out there or something? Oh. Here's how I got to LA. I was having trouble getting going as a producer. I know I wasn't having like real success producing a lot of, a lot of English bands and wasn't having hits. I couldn't figure out what I was doing. 
Did you have a manager yet? No. Oh, so you were on your yeah. own. I was, yeah. I was doing them all. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I produced, I was producing a band for Virgin Records called Ward Brothers. We were three guys from Limitown, Van Barnsley, Barca, And they were brothers. And one was a guitar player and a bass player and a drummer, right? And they had the sound. And the guy played kind of like Mark Knopfler. He's really good. And they wrote great songs. So I got cleared to produce them. And, and uh, then it turned into a bidding more. So now the stakes were high and everyone's looking. It wasn't just get a good record. It's like, we got to have the hit that breaks these yeah, guys. Yeah. So we fly them to New York. I, I wanted to do it in my little studio in Barnes. They come to New York and they'd never been to New York. Yeah. It, it kind of made them stiff. Oh, yeah. It wasn't bad. The A&R guy came. He was like a guy. His claim to fame was he rescored Cayenne Scotsy. He took out the score and, and, he, and he put in the human. He rescored the human. Well, that was what he knew about music. So he comes in, he said, no, nah, man, you're doing this all wrong. They got to get drunk. And so they got drunk and they got sick and we didn't get anything. And I get to the studio the next day and uh, he canceled the sessions. And he took the band back in and didn't tell me. No, I, I didn't hear from them for a month. And he said, well, we're going to finish it here. You can come on your own dime if you want and still be part of it. So I went on my own dime. I didn't have anything going for me. And then I get there and, all right, you're back in our favor now. Blah, 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 blah. Then they said, we're going to start mixing here. This is the guy who was going to mix it. You can come if you want. Great. Come. I got there and there was the wrong guy mixing there. So I, they kept saying they wanted it to sound like Don Henley. I said, all right, if you want it to sound like Don Henley. doesn't sound anything like Don Henley. Yeah. But if you want to try to get that sound, yeah. this is definitely not the guy. I said, you take these nine songs, you keep mixing them with this guy here. Give me one song. I'm going to go to New York or go to Los like Angeles. Get Greg Ladani who mixed yeah. Don Henley. Don Henley. So they say, okay. So put the two tapes under my arm, fly back to New York City, picking up Gemma in New York, and we're going to go out and yes. take a look, see if maybe we should live in L.A. We're there next to us. So I go pick her up at the house, get in a cab, and go back to Newark Airport. We're taking a red eye out there, and I'm supposed to mix the next day. Get to the check-in, and she says, where are the tapes? And I left them in the back of a New York City cab <laughs> at midnight on a Friday. <laughs> and I, like, sort of collapsed to my knees in the lobby of Newark Airport. So we went back, and of course, Gemma did A&R for Virgin Records. She was already doing that right for 36 years. Yeah. But, so she was already doing that. So she was able to turn up a tape that had everything but the drums. What tape did she get? You know, some extra reel that they had to consolidate tracks or something. But it didn't have drums on it. So Greg Labonte was cool. He said, look, come on Sunday instead of Saturday. And this is great. And then I called him favors. I was too embarrassed uh, to even... Admit what I'd done. I told him I got mugged at TV. Yeah, that just cloned him. Mm-hmm. And Michael Brower, yeah. engineered for free. Yeah, media sound put up time for free. Steve Ferroni came in and played for free. And I said, I handed him a cassette. I said, the guy in the band can't know that I lost the tape and then you replayed his part. So you had to play exactly, play exactly the way he yeah. learned it in two seconds and he did it. I said, get on a plane that night. I'm flying out. To, I, re- I remember driving out. To, it was the low point of my life, man. I was driving. Back to Newark Airport on a bus, and I, I had the headphones on, a Walkman. I had an advanced copy of Peter Gabriel's album. So, and I'm playing Don't Give Up over and over yeah. again. And I'm sitting there crying. Yeah. I, I was rock bottom, man. Yeah, I yeah. lost the yeah. fucking masters. <laughs> really? <laughs> I get out to LA, go to a complex where Greg's working. He said, Well, it's going to take me eight hours to mix, so go sit in lounge. And because I was there on the Sunday instead of the Saturday, there were different artists working in the other room. And Bonnie Raitt 
was working in the other studio. That's how I met Bonnie. And I wouldn't have met Bonnie, who, who totally changed my life. <laughs> if I hadn't been what there year that was day, that? 86. Jeez, because it wasn't that long after they didn't make yeah. a time. Yeah, well, but, that, but that stemmed from that meeting. That was the selling it. Her career was ready to be reinvented again because she, she'd been dropped by her label. Yeah. She was closing in on 40 and she was playing some great slide guitar, singing with a blues. I played with her in 86 at Farming. Yeah. Well, she, I mean, she was still working, but she was out of the yeah. Yeah. It was the era of yeah. Flock of Seagulls. Yeah. And it couldn't have been less fashionable than to play. Yeah. So Warner Brothers dropped her and she had no record deal. And I don't know, we weren't quite sure what to do, but she we became friendly. And, and Hal Wilner arranged for us to do this, this Disney song, Baby Mine, for one of his tribute records. And yeah. so that got me into the studio, which, which was maybe six months after I met her at Wow. And then we, we clicked. I loved it. She's yeah. like our sister. And, you know, it was like, it was like I'd known her all my life. And she started coming to my house making things. And then, to your point, because Wasn't I Was had, in the intro, we'd had a hit, Walk the Dinosaur. So Capitol Records, I went from being like no help at all to being help, someone who helped her get a record deal. Because they thought, well, great, we'll do a Walk the Dinosaur with Bonnie and have a hit. And, of course, we did nothing like Walk the Dinosaur. But we made a great Bonnie, great record. That's how I ended up in California. And they, but we were close to that. And then, because, you know, I'm the loop in Love Shack because of beef excuse because obviously that happened around then, you know, when they were a month apart in August. How did you get that? They called. There's a sensibility, uh, yeah. there's a simpatico sensibility between the beef excuse and Love Shack. Love Shack. It was, were, they, were they best on? They were, at, well, they were originally based on the Athens, Georgia. That's it. Like, yeah, right. And there were two of them were living in Woodstock. So, and Fred was living in Woodstock. Sidney was still in Georgia. So we, we ended up cut Woodstock. Nice. And so did that in August and did make a time in September and, and went from being pariah, unable to work, yeah. you know, begging, you know, for, uh, to mix one song to having work. Yeah, that's it. And I was still kind of riding the wave of that thing. And, I'm sure you can relate to this. I don't talk. think oh, they're, they're going to figure out that I don't know what I'm yeah, yeah, doing. Yeah. It's a better time before I. But yeah. going back to, you know, coming, growing up with a uh, father, like, you know, it was from that generation. I mean, there, was, there was no entitlement back then. You, you never thought anybody was going to take care of you. You know, you, you got that discipline that, that you, and once that's in your, your bone marrow, you never lose it. I'm still here till two in the morning, you know, uh, not because I, First of all, we enjoy what we do. We love what we do. First thing, purpose, you know, you're, you're, it's coming from here, not here. It's a joyful thing. It's a loving thing. It feels good mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Why would we want to do it? You know, it just feels good. So, you know, I have a theory about being a drummer. I, you know, I, and when I look back and go like, well, yeah, I gravitated towards drums because it made my adrenaline go up, my cortisol levels go up, my, you know, all these chemicals that were living in me. And I was like getting high off of being, you know, Playing the drums, so why wouldn't I do that? It felt good, you know, that and chasing girls. You know, come on, that's all you need. And maybe a little food here and there. And, but, uh, yeah, that's what, I mean, that's, I can tell. That's why we do But we got that discipline from a, a generation that they were trying to yeah, put food on the table, build up the family. And, yeah. and, 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 and so you, that, you never lose that. That's a, yeah, I mean, it's a powerful, a powerful asset. And, and the, the fact that it's fun is, 
That's oh yeah. You know, I, I, I just went to we, we couldn't have a reunion during COVID, so I went to my fifty second high school almost a year ago. And uh we're all seventy at that point, right? And some of these guys looked like they were eighty six. Oh yeah. I kind of hunched over. Yeah. And some of them are vibrant. They were the same as they were when they were in their forties, right? The difference seemed to me on a very cursory kind of yeah. survey level, which <laughs> that's scientific, but uh, seemed like the people who had spent their lives doing something that they loved and found to be purposeful and meaningful, helpful. That could be pumping gas. You know? Pumping gas is a great service. You know, like keep the country moving. Yeah, it's a great. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, but you just have to find the thing that that gives you a sense of mission and and yeah purpose and and fulfillment and the ones who lived the life in that were in great health i mean i'm i think i'll be 71 in two weeks it's the best time of my life i feel great my health is good i'm still strong my mom told me something like this way way this we get to 70 if you're healthy it's the best because you physical and mental and emotional all come together Yes. Hey, look at you're like probably like me. You can't wait to wake up in the morning and do what you're doing. You don't want to turn the lights off at night because you're still digging what you do. You know, it's like it shouldn't. I mean, God, when you look at all the things you're doing, I mean, I totally get it. It's like, yeah, why not do that? Why not do that? Sure, yeah. I got wine now. I got a book, got a podcast. Still rocking all over the place on tour. You know, still making records. Mm-hmm. I'm digging life, man. You know, it's 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 amazing. Yes. Well, I, I tell you something. I mean, I was. When I was struggling in Detroit, there was a point right around 1980s, right, be- right before things started. But yeah, yeah. Right. I was just so far in debt. I was marriage and first wife. had a young kid. Yeah. I was playing, I was making 120 bucks a week, playing four nights a week. Yeah. Right. And I loved the gig, but I, it wasn't enough to get by. I was falling $1,000 a month behind. Yeah, the month. My dad helped me a little bit. It was rough. So I had to try to accept defeat and I had to try to find a job and I was unqualified to do anything. I'm, I made up all kinds of resumes, lied through my teeth, couldn't get anything, even saying I, I had, I was qualified for something. It's a rough time. It was a wild economic. Those are gifts of depressed periods. Right? So finally I got a job repairing copy machines uh, through the VISTA program, which is something that Reagan cut out. It was like a domestic peace corps and government would pay half of your wages if oh, someone would teach you a trade. Well, so they taught me how to repair copy machines. And I thought my life was in. Yeah, because my goal in life is I'd have been fine. I just wanted to play. Just yeah. wanted to never have a job. Yeah. Never wanted to have to do yeah. work. I didn't want to do. Now I was going to have to do this gig. And I was mad. I drove to work Ford Maverick without a passenger door. And I had to tape Radio Shack cassette machine down because I couldn't afford a cassette player. And I made a tape. I made a, a cassette that had nothing but the song Satisfaction on it. And yeah. I drove to work for you did all the sets. When I was I was pissed off. Then I really thought I'd I'd sunk to the lowest, man, because they said, you know, when you're out there fixing traffic machines, we want you to uh, sell paper and toner. And we don't think you know anything about selling anything. So they enrolled me in the Dale Carnegie sales force. So I had to go there after work, like for a couple of weeks, right? And it's me and five Willie Loman. If you read Death of a Salesman, kind of guys, oh, like old, broken down salesmen who were trying to oh. keep their edge on. It was sad. And yeah. why am I doing it? So the first night, yeah, the first assignment was you got to write down in your wildest dreams where do you want to be in one year, 
your wildest dreams, where do you want to be in five years and also 10 years? Well, it's really hard to admit that to yeah. yourself. Really hard to yeah. be honest with just with yourself about what your dreams really are. But I took it seriously and I wrote it down. Then it's hard to get up and, and admit it in front of a room full of strangers. But wow. And you had to do that? So was, yeah. So I had to get up and read it. So I was the first one. So I said, in one year, I want to be out of this fucking job. I got the big laugh of the night. That we are all there to save our jobs, right? In five years, I want a record I produced to come out. And in 10 years, I want to produce an artist who's actually well-known, established artist. And after I got done saying that, admitting it to myself, articulating it so clearly to a group of strangers, I looked at that piece of paper and I said, wow, how hard can this be? And within a year and a half, I, I had a record deal and was out of the job in a month. And within a year and a half, Carly Simon had called me to produce. So my tenure came in at, uh, you know, after a year and a half. And, and I really, cra- and to be honest with you, I used the techniques I learned in the Dale Carnegie sales. There's a gift in everything. It was incredible. So my whole life, the, uh, the arc of it changed from, from that moment on. And the hardest thing is when you, a cop, you turn 40 and you've done all the stuff that you wanted to do. That, that's, that's a hard thing when you got to, you have to readjust. All right. Well, my dreams came true. Yeah, I keep putting new ones out there. That's for sure. That's what you got. That's what what you've done is so brilliant, man. All the, all the new things I see you doing. Yeah, I can't help myself. So the show, I mean, it's great. But we, you and I are the same, man. We just yeah. keep, we we keep seeking out new adventures. Did you you you, you, you uh, we're wired that way. You know, we're just wired that way. It will enjoy life. I, I'm always looking for more enjoyment, more uh, ways to to uh, yeah. live this very 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 short life now. Uh, it's just incredible. And, um, uh, you know, and the ripple effect of being happy really uh, affects people around you. So all the joy that you've created producing, bringing people together, all those parts that we did, oh my God, all those big concerts we've done with the Greg Allman tribute, the, the uh, Merle Haggy tribute, the, uh, uh, the Johnny Cash yeah, tribute. Johnny Cash tribute, all, all those black all, shows and Levon Helm. Levon Helm. I was talking to the greatest part about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these humongous. Didn't we do something with the Dalai Lama? Oh, you remember that? That was we were stuck in. We did Leave on Elm and the Dalai Lama, and we were in the hotel room, all, both of us writing charts, 50, yeah. 60 charts. Mm-hmm. And we had to do both shows very close together. Yeah, we were on our day off. How you doing? Look, the thirty-eight. Yeah, really? that's right. Yeah, and that was such a trip, man. We was we for the listeners. We did a show. Someone had brought a bunch of Nobel laureates to Syracuse University. Yeah, with them the Dalai Lama. Yeah, and he. Was gonna, they were going to have a rally in the football stadium. And there was 35,000 yeah. people. And the Dalai Lama was speaking. And then there was a musical portion. And we were the band. We had to back up this really wide yeah. array of artists. It ranged from Engelbert Humperdinck to Natasha Bedingfield yeah. to... Uh, uh, who was the singer? The Winin? Uh, Wayne at Winin? One of the Winins? Uh, anyway. Could be. Yeah. I mean, it was just... It was Dave Matthews. Yeah. Uh, Roberta Flack. Every song was like a different musical universe. It was a great gig. Yeah. And I think Near Felder. It was a Near Felder play guitar. Oh, um, yeah. I remember Michael. Michael. Um, Greg Weiss was there. Yeah. Greg Weiss was there. Yelled, Michael Barrett was playing keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. There was another keyboard player. Who's the other? It's Chris. Chris Coswell. Yeah. Michigan boy. And, um, and we got our compensation package was a private audience with Dalai Lama, which I believe you slept through. I listened. 
I went, you know, I slept through, I was working on my charts. That's what I was working on my charts. So do you remember what I, well, I felt so horrible that I went, oh my God, I don't, I won't put on the spot. You remember? I said, oh my God, I missed it. You know what he said? I know what happened. <laughs> it was a, it was a weird encounter. Yeah. And you said you didn't miss it. So I felt bad. Here, all right. Here's what happened. Yeah. It's about 30 musicians. Yeah. In the locker room, Syracuse yeah. University. Dalai Lama comes in and he says, anyone got any questions? Andy Grammer. Andy Grammer says, he says, what's the connection between music and the soul? And the Dalai Lama, who I preface this by saying, Dalai Lama will probably do more good in the next hour than I'll do in my entire life. So I'm not really knocking the Dalai Lama. And he was, yeah, he was 80 something. And it's probably his fit speaking engagement of the day. Yeah. But the Dalai Lama, Answers the question, what's the connection between music and soul? By, by trash and music. He said, well, music's nothing. It's good for getting people into a stadium like this so you can talk to them about real stuff. But it's just the most ephemeral. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and so it's all musicians. And all musicians. Let's play. So Cindy Lauper uh, interrupts the Dalai Lama. Oh, my God. She says, but you chant. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but chanting is just the oh, most this ephemeral. Great. This is great. Then this guy, I, I forgot his name, but he's a rapper who was who had been uh, a Somalian or Sudanese, one of the child soldiers. Yeah, you know, who got marched across the continent. Wow! And he was back, and he was with Swizz Beats, and he, and he was rapping on the show. So he stood up. And he said, I "Saw my mother and father killed right before my eyes." Yeah, you know, and I killed two hundred people by the time I was ten years old. Yeah. So the only way I've been able to get your life is with music. Yeah. And the Dalai Lama wouldn't back off. It's just oh my of this harsh stance. So I just thought, I'm, uh, you know, I'm thinking about we, we've got to do this big show. And, yeah, and, no and I thought, I just, I must have gotten this all wrong. So the next day I called Phil Ramon, produced the show. Yeah, yeah. And, and Phil was there. And so cool. I called Phil. I said, I must have heard Dalai Lama trash music in front of a bunch of musicians who'd come there yeah. to support him and his cause yeah. all over the world. He said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I said, what are you making of that? He said, oh, it's easy. He said, music's the competition. And then I signed him by And we know that, that because I meditate too. Yeah. You know, so music is just like meditation. It's yeah. just another form of it. Yeah, yeah. It, it will get you to the same place. Yeah. Especially if people like we're, when I play with Weir and we play, you know, over three hours. Every, yeah. By the end of the thing, man, I'm transported. Yeah, yeah. And so, and for what it's worth, the Dalai Lama a few years later ended up making an album. <laughs> Oh my God, that's a great punchline. But uh, I, I'm not dissing the dollar. Of course I you are. No, these are just great stories. I mean, this is great. Oh my God, you reminded me of Cindy Lauper. That was one of the craziest rehearsals. I won't go into it. But I don't do buttons. If we know anything about me, even though I don't do buttons, it was hilarious. You as a character. You got to say something about the highwayman session because, I mean, I always, I mean, that's what, that's probably the session. That I remember, I didn't say jack shit because how are you going to talk or say something intelligent? You got those four guys that are in their own world and highly clever, smart in in a way, you know. And and I'm thinking Don has to deal with four of them, well, four, not to mention everything else. How would you just back out? I mean, I you have to at some point you have to unify everybody, and there's all this inside. Jabbering going on. I saw them digging each other. We, you know, saying, you know, it was not, 
and they took it out of their breath. Oh, yeah. And you, there was all kinds of stuff that she was happening. The history of these four guys, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopher, Wayne and Jennings, and, you know, uh, Johnny Cash. I mean, it's just deep. There's a lot in a lot of uh, things bubbling under. Yeah, there's a lot of I can say they also all loved each other. Yeah. But they were larger than life and all incredible artists. Yeah. Like the real and deal. Just, and, and super mad, man. You know, they're super mad. Yeah. And uh, it was so weird to be thrust in the middle of it. At that point, I, I learned the Bob Dylan move, George Harrison lesson. Yes. Yeah. Do not pay any to be a fan, get in there and do your job. And so I tried to finish it, but this, this footage, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I was directing a documentary about the making of the record yeah. while I was producing the record yeah. while we were playing, right? So it's cameras everywhere. And the, it, a lot of it's up on YouTube. You can yeah. see it. And the, and the first day, uh, <laughs> we're sitting around in a circle. Yeah. Guys, they, and they're, they're, they're trading songs. Yeah. We're deciding what songs to record. And I'd been told beforehand, that Chris really wanted to do a song that none of the other three guys wanted to do. Right. And they put it on me. They said, you got to, you got to tell them. We, we can't, we don't want to get in a fight with Chris today. Yeah. So I had to argue with Chris about this song. And when it comes, when Chris is talking about how great the song is, and it comes to me. And uh, when I start talking, my voice is like up two octaves. Well, I think so. <laughs> the first is maybe a vacation. That was so it's one of my doings this guy is huge uh, but he was a it was an incredible experience and oh, he played brilliantly yeah. incredible and just to be in a room with these yeah. organists and be part of that energy it was super energy the my favorite part of the whole thing was i don't know if you remember this gene autry came to visit what so no, it's it's on felt they came he came to visit wow maybe it was before sessions but those four guys yeah gene with those four guys Represent to us, that's what Gene Autry was to them. And they sat down on the sofa, and all four of those guys turned into nine-year-olds fawning over them. They couldn't believe their hero came to see him. And you can see they're nervous. And and he says something to Gene, says something to Willie, and Willie's voice is up to two octaves, just like mine. <laughs> oh, my God. So you got to see them. Be people and and, the, and we did, we got to spend time talking to him about it and I remember Christopherson saying every one of these guys reinvented themselves. I got asked to go on tour and um, Mark Rothbaum for our Willie Willie's manager calls up and says, "Do we got this tour? The high women they want you, they like you, you know, which is such an honor because they don't like you. Yeah, you're gonna get new. Yeah. If they like you, that's huge. You're in. You're cool." I said, "Where are the dates?" I went, "Oh man, just be on tour with Melancamp." I said, I can't call you tomorrow. I'll call him back next day. I said, just like Elton, I'm not ready to leave. And he says, oh, Marcos, let me get this right. <laughs> You're saying no <laughs> to Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and Waylon Jennings and Chris Christopherson. I went, my voice went out with. <laughs> I said, dude, Mark, I can't. I, I'm not ready. And I'm thinking, I should do this. What are you doing? This is like, this is not one guy, this is four guys. And they like you. And I, I didn't do it. It was like Laurel Sims. And my career has never been good since. <laughs> I, no, they had an incredible band. They had the Chips Mormons, Memphis guys, and Reggie Young. Yeah. The big uh, pedal steel. Chrisman. Uh, oh, Robbie Turner. Robbie Turner. Oh, on, on the session we did, we had, we, yeah. about it. we had Robbie Turner. Robbie and Turner. Mickey. We had and Ben Montench. And uh, Mark Oldenburg. Mark Oldenburg. Here, guitar. Also, 
Greg Meese, the first time yeah. I played Greg Dude, Meese, I'll never forget. Listen to the first song, and it's a straight ahead demo. It's country. I'm looking at this band, and looking, we're in LA, we're not in Nashville. I go, Tim, do you, do you want me to do what's on the demo? Do you want me to, you know, invent something, be creative, uh, innovative? He said, do, do your own thing. Don't do that. But I'm walking toward the, we're walking toward the moon to start. I'm like, well, what do you do to, like, I don't know, I don't know, that's, that's going to be different. I remember when I walked over to, I'm like stalling. I'm like, holy shit. It's like four on the floor. I remember that. I'm looking at all my percussion. I'm like, and I'm just like, just improvising. Bottom line is I ended up, I'm going to keep the kick drum in the same set for a way, and then four on the floor. But I took the snare, turned around, I took a gourd with beads. I'm going to use that as my mm-hmm. snare drum. Put a, a djembe there. Instead of playing a high after get this metal crash here and play with like code Ayers, mm-hmm. put like a, you know, Maracas over there. And just made the whole kit weird. But the kick drum was driving four on the floor. Yeah. What happened, I noticed, is that as soon as I started doing that, well, I'm turning go, oh. And so it didn't do like a regular pedal suit. It turned it more like a guitar player or mm-hmm. something. And then everybody adjusted. And Wayne came out. He loved it. He came out and he's, he's doing this with his stabilization. Mm-hmm. Pacing and yeah, and you said something. Are you okay with this? And he says, "Love it." I mean, he was really because, hey, as you well know, in Nashville back then, they, those Nashville people would try to tell them, "These are your songs. This is your album cover." And yeah. Wayland, you telling Waylon Jennings? You don't trust. And what's on his? You don't yeah. tell Waylon Jennings that. <laughs> yeah, no, Waylon was super good, man. Made incredible musical instincts, and with remember that the album we did with him, I love that. Album. Incredible album. Blues part two. And I went to meet Way More Blues. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Way More Blues. Yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, I remember going to the hotel to meet with him. And I said, well, what you got in mind? And, and he put on Oh Mercy, Bob Dylan's record that he did with Daniel Lamb. First two. That he wanted that incredible. The real texture. Yeah. That's, that's pretty progressive. You wouldn't have imagined that. But Waylon, always one of the first people to ever cut a Christopherson song. He, he cut Stone songs. Yeah, as a country artist, you know, which you know. Well, he was a bass player from Buddy Holly. Yeah. He started off doing that. Yeah. Yeah. But William was incredibly hip and open-minded. And he encouraged, on that album, he encouraged. Yeah, he, he almost used that, that, that. I'll never forget it. I'll never, that was first song, first day. Mm-hmm. And that set the tone yeah. for the whole record. That was like a band coming together. You know, sometimes you spend a week and you're trying to find what's our, what's our direction. Yeah. Bam. Bam. It was there. It was Michael Rhodes. He did? For all my... Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Brilliant. Album. That was incredible. Yeah. Well, we just went on the highway, man. He's talking about the Stones now. I still, I still remember where I was. And I says, hey, Kenny, how's that to play with the remaining Beatles? <laughs> I'm like, what? He says, yeah, man. And then you explain this uh, tribute. Yeah. Dude, that was insane. That was like, not only we play that, but we played... Dave Grohl, playing with Jeff Lynn, played with uh, John Legend, Alicia Keys duet, uh, Mayor and, and Keith Urban, uh, Pharrell Williams, uh, Rad Crazy, and, and, you know, McCartney and Rango Starr. I mean, it was like, and you and I saw the Beatles on TV. This is life-changing, and now we're celebrating them, honoring them. I mean, what the heck? It was so deep, man. I, when I, I knew we were doing the gig, I took like a month where I stopped, and I got the Beatles multi-tracks. Oh, you sent me one of them. 
Yeah. You saved yeah. my ass because it was on something. Bulldog, just something. Because it was Bulldog just something. Well, there was this one thing. Something. Well, something. Yeah. Yeah. There was some weird role. Yeah. And I'm like, what is he doing? And you said, hey, I got the drum tracks on. And during the show, the camera went on radio and he went, <laughs> he went, he acknowledged that there's no way in how I would have known that he'd done that unless you had sent me. You sent it to me one night and I went, God, thank you. You yeah, made me look so good. I felt that, yes, Paul McCartney and Randall were going to be sitting right in front of us on this mattress. But I thought, well, speaking for myself, I wouldn't be here tonight if it wasn't for that. Yeah, absolutely. So this is the chance to say thank you. You know, thank you for directing me into the best life I could have imagined, right? So I wanted to show real respect and I wanted to play his parts correctly. So Me too. So yeah. I, I got the multi-tracks and I sat in my bedroom like when I was 14, except I had multi-tracks yeah. in my bedroom. Right? And I first I isolated Paul's parts. First of all, Paul's parts are very, very, every note is... He's a genius. Man. Genius. He's like the Mozart. Yeah. Rock and roll bass. Yeah. Mozart. He's a genius. Alternate voices. It was part on something is absolutely symphonic. It's just genius. Genius bass plan. So I wanted to get it all right. So I, I, I learned note for note what he played. Then I'd go check like later things to the band that he's got now and see what was just peculiar to that night and what did he think the main things were to still be. Of course. So then I reconciled that and then. I took Paul out and I practiced with the Beatles and with the multi-tracks till I had those parts in turn. Wow. And there were a couple of them I was still getting wrong. There was something in some Lucas Air show that day and, and, and we got it right. This was Lucas was always it was Lucas there. It was I don't know, Peter Frampton. Peter Frampton. What great, great combinations. Uh, Rami Jaffe, you Chris Caswell's a mile Chris away Caswell, with Lenny, Lenny Castro. Castro the background there. Judas Hill. Yeah. Jesus, Hill was in there. Yeah. That was incredible. Because, you know, um, in front of me was, um, uh, you know, Peter Frampton and, and Lucas's amps. And this difference. Mm -hmm. It was the most perfect combination of guitar players. Because they so different sounding. Mm -hmm. And when one, they soloed different, it was a great blend. Yeah. I thought it was amazing. The, the, one, one of the greatest moments was like, you know, the scene, obviously the... Uh, Ken uh, Ehrlich was the, uh, obviously the visual was very important because they put half the band eight miles over there. They, they made it a little hard. And, but, but did you know what Ringo did when it was time to do his segment? Made him reset the whole thing. Yeah, sure do. Yeah. Made him reset it because he said, I play with a band. Yeah. So at the end, as you know, that there were these relief sheet There's Tom Hanks, his wife, Ringo Starr's wife, Paul McCartney's girlfriend. Uh, the, uh, Yoko, you know, what? Yoko, Ono was there. Yoko Ono was there, and then Harrison's widow was there, mm -hmm. and then there was Tom Cruise, that Johnny Depp, and uh, oh, somebody else, uh, Sean Penn, they're all there. I go out there, now. I'd met, we've up, we did the Grammys the night before, he did yeah. photograph, yeah, for, yeah. That was and then two weeks prior, you and once again served me up great. We did that tribute at Dave Lynch Foundation where we played four songs with Randall. Honoring him, mm -hmm. killer band, Ben Montage and all this. And um, but I never really got to tell Ringo, you know, because everyone was around him. I go out there and I, 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 I see Ringo and I'm acknowledging him, but Ringo's applauding me, sitting down going, Bravo, Kenny, Bravo. And I get on one knee because I'm thinking, I got, I got to tell this is my moment. And before I could say anything, because I'm on one knee, he goes, it's okay, I'm already married. <laughs> 
his wife would just die and laugh at me. But what I told him was like, you're the reason why I play golf. You're the reason why I play rock and roll. You and the Beatles set me on a course at age 10 that I've been on ever since. I just want to thank you. I mean, you helped me realize my purpose in life. And I walked away. I mean, that was it. It was like, bam. Yeah, it's deep. It's, re it's really deep. It's really deep. Yeah. So I, I mean, thank you for including me on that. It was like one of the heaviest, heaviest one. I mean, uh, sheesh. Was it weird? Was it, what was it like uh, doing, uh, producing Bob Seger since, you know, he was your godfather in Detroit? You know, well, it was very comfortable. You know, because oh, he's, 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 he's the archetypal Detroit guy, man. You know, and, and especially the tracking, we had a lot of fun. You know, when I think about those records from the period, I do think about Ed Chin, who I miss. Yeah. And, and, you know, he was, Ed Chin was the recording engineer who I started working with him on Make a Time, his first record we did together. And uh, he just passed away a few years ago. We, we, we had a lot of adventures. Oh, yeah. And what a combo you guys were. The three of us had so much fun. And, oh. and he, he was a large part of keeping the brain Neil and relaxed because he was yeah. just such a lovable yeah. guy. You know, it was a big heart and everybody picked up on that. Everybody yelled in and his engineering was superlative. Man, but if you listen to Nick of Time, the genius of Ed Sheeran and Nick of Time and Luck of the Draw, you can hear yeah. now afterwards, he actually refined it a little more. Was that he had he'd come to LA, Sudan brought him, you mm know, -hmm. from Chicago, but Bruce was Quincy's guy. As oh, he had assisted Bruce on like Michael Jackson records and stuff. So he, he knew how to make it big. He knew how to make a big record. Yeah. Bonnie's record was supposed to be intimate, but instead making it dry, which would have been tepid, he just tightened everything up. So it, it had all the effects on it, but the delay times are real short. And he did a hi-fi, highly produced sound yeah. that also felt very intimate. It was deceptively, I, I it, it wasn't as intimate. There were, there were more effects than you see yeah. on there. And he didn't go too far with it. He didn't go far with it. He, he was so nuanced and no one had ever done that. He invented that sound. It became very popular in the nineties. So after Nick Tello, but, but he was just, he was a genius behind the board yeah. being the most beautiful soul. And, and when, I can't think about those times without thinking about him because he was such a part of that. You're saying, yeah, that well, that was the greatest, one of the greatest times in our musical journeys, and he was part of it. I'd love it because he go, he had that smile and go, can you, can you bring me? I like that pink snare. Bring that pink snare. <laughs> He's like this big guy, but he dropped like a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> Great laugh. Yeah. So uh, the record label. I mean, what is that? Did producing? I mean, because you, you know you're running a whole room. Mm -hmm. Did that? Uh, help you segue into, you know, are they completely different? Is it a totally different world? Was it like they running? It was a new skill set, the business part of it. I had, I had no idea how to run a record. Well, you I learned from that job you had in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that was, yeah, I guess I knew. Wasn't that the, the uh, me to be at the Dale Carnegie Foundation? <laughs> See? No, I showed up at Capitol Tower. What, what happened was I was producing John Mayer. And an album called Born and Raised, 2011. We had a night off. I went up to a jazz club to this guy, Gregory Porter, great singer, at like maybe the finest singer facing the earth today. And he was just playing this little club band. He was just getting started. And I stayed all three sets. I wasn't there to hustle for work or anything. I was just there to yeah. enjoy myself, just drank coffee, ate ribs, and listened to this great singer. The next morning, I was having breakfast with my buddy Dan McCherrill, who was 
and a drummer who's married to Jane Oppenheimer from Wickless all to the 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Dan, he'd gone from being Cheryl Crow's drummer to being the president of Capitol Records. At the end of the breakfast in New York, I said, is Blue still part of Capitol? Because if it is, you should sign this guy. I saw this, Grenade Porter. He said, no, you should sign. And he offered me this job. Like, I don't know. Just out of nowhere? Yeah. And, you know, my goal in life was to get through life without taking a job. So now I made it to 58 and I thought, I'm home free here. I mean, but I was such a Blue Note fan yeah. from, from when I was a teenager. And I collected the records and I loved everything that they represented. And I couldn't turn it down, man. Because any other record company, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of learning. And my big fear is that, you know, you have X amount of synopsis that you can keep open in the brain at any given time. And to learn something new, you got to close something else down. So I thought, all right, I got to learn how to read a profit and loss state estimate. I never did that. Never, I don't mean, I didn't even know that you job there now. You know, you got to, if you're going to run a business, you got to understand how yeah. it operates, right? Uh, so I had got to be able to read that. So I'm going to learn how to do that, but I'm going to have to stop doing some other things. And it's probably going to be left brain, right brain. Yeah. I may never write a song. Well, I and that was, do I really want to do that? Wow. Do I really want to rework my brain? And oh, it's like, yeah, my songs stink. Because seriously, songwriting does take up a lot of time. Yeah, well, it, it takes it, up a it, lot of time. It occupies, your brain's got to work a certain way to do it. That's kind of the way you so, dissect it. So uh, I thought, all right, I'll, I'll learn. And I really haven't written much in <laughs> the last 13 months. Yeah, but I learned how to run a record company. And it took about five years to figure okay. out not just how to do it, but how to be how, to, how anyone can, how to, you got to be yourself. The guy who, who I succeeded in, which a job, was a guy named Bruce Lundbaugh, who was probably the most revered record executive and mm -hmm. artist of all time. Wow. You, you never heard bad word about him. He was always on the artist's side. He ran Columbia Records in the 60s. He was head of Electra for a while. And then he, he started, he out. he'd been this, he started running Blue Note in the 80s. He didn't start label, which goes back to 1939, but he ran for 30 years and he was ill Parkinson's and mm -hmm. couldn't continue. So they needed someone to come. Is that where you took his place? Yeah. Wow. That's some big shoes to jump in. Impossible. And, you know, so he was one of these guys, he could, he'd hang with the musicians. He'd stay out to five in the morning. If you sent him an email, he'd get back to you in 30 seconds. Yeah. And if someone sends me an email, it's 50, 50, I'm never going to respond, you know? And so. I tried to be like him. I couldn't be like him. And it took a while to figure out how to make it work. How to yeah. do the things I'm good at, delegate the things I'm not good at. It's obviously working because you still got your job. Can't believe it's been 13 years. I'm in my 13th year now and we're doing well. You know, I'm now, really proud of And it's jazz label. It's that we're not talking like pop radio. Not any rap artists. But we have some big artists. We have, you know, Nora Jones, she's on Blanc, Roseanne Cash, some Blue Note, Mark Knopfler, something. Mark Knopfler? Yeah, we put out his records in the in the last, yeah. I always wanted to play with Mark. He's badass. He's badass, man. I'm learning a song for this Ursa thing called The Bug. It's cool. It's all groove, man. Just picking, like country picking on a guitar. It's badass. Yeah. Uh, it's a Dagger Straits uh, song. Yeah. Um. So, when, but when you're on the road, like, you know, with uh, Bob Weir, right? <laughs> Being on the road. I get up early in the morning, do Z calls. How many hours a day when you're on the road do you, do you have to put in on? It varies. Yeah. There's no, there's no rule. But 
I take care of everything that's got to be taken care of. How many artists you sign on that label? Probably around 30. Do you handle everyone? There's six people who work with Dino Records. Yeah, uh, everyone does everything. It's all hands on. That's incredible. And I'm really fortunate that, you know, to tell you the truth, one of the reasons I was reticent about taking the job was because I like record companies. And to, in my experience, there were the people who showed up at your sessions, told you, give you bad notes about what you were supposed to do. And if you listen to them, and that in spite of the, how they might have ruined the records, still became a hit, and they'd steal your money. That's what that's what I thought. And your credit too. That they take. No, I told you it was a hit. Yeah, right. That's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. When I got the, the gig at Blue Note, I'm looking around. Uh, it was the part of Capitol Records, right? So yeah, same Capitol Tower, and a bunch of people working. Look at this. It's a, a record company is 98 percent young people who love music love musicians and are willing to stay till 11 o'clock at night to to serve the musicians. They were really dedicated. And that that's what a record company is primarily. That you can't judge it by, you know, like some cigar chomping guy. Can, they don't really yeah. even exist anymore, those. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So record companies have their downside, but they also have big upside. Like yeah. if Duno was part of Capital, was part of Universal Music Group, and if we need to reach around the globe and let people know about a record that we have out, there's muscle there. Yeah, there's yeah. muscle, yeah. And when it kicks in, it's a beautiful thing. That's incredible. So I, I love the job. I'm really proud of the artists that we have signed right yeah. now. There's it's a young group of people, and there's this incredible artists like Emmanuel Wilkins, Joe Ross, and Melissa Aldana, the a guy that produced earlier this week in New York, Naduto Makatini had a South African make. Incredible. Nowadays, how do you find new artists? Are they coming to you or you have to uh, do outreach? You know what I mean? It's, it's every which way. Yeah, yeah. I do get bombarded. With I'm sure. I, get, but I can't listen to everything. I, I'm, I'm better. Do you have people helping you with there's that? A, there's an A&R guy. Young, young guy who's doing a great job. And we have very different tastes, which is good. Yeah. I am 71, but I'm aware that, yeah. Uh, yeah, you I'm aware that the great music on Blue Note, no matter what era you look at, a lot of it was made by people in their 20s. Line, you know, the, all the great Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock stuff from the yeah. 60s to during the 20s when they made this shit. Why they changed the world, those records, and the, that music is relevant today. Today? Yeah. But the, oh, you came in. I was young. John Gold yeah, yeah, exactly. He you know, was young when he made Mopes. I know, man. You know? Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, that's incredible. Uh, one more story here. Yeah. All right. You got to tell it because I'm going to probably get it wrong. One of the, I think we were doing a Willie Nelson record. Walked into the studio in LA and we said, I got to leave. I got to go or, or, or I can't. I got to leave earlier. Or, I can't go tomorrow. I got to leave. And, and John's like, what? Well, you know, I'm, I, I'm opening up for Strength and Actra in Palm Springs. Which is, well, then you say, well, well, you're taking us. Well, he, it was more than that. He said, I, I'm playing, I'm opening up for Frank Sinatra. It's his last show ever, and everybody knows it but him. Right. Yeah, but this is the last time he's ever been playing public. It's for the Barbara Sinatra Celebrity Pro-Am Golf Tournament in Palm Springs. I said, well, who's going? He said, it was me and Mickey. I said, well, let me and Kenny come with you, and we'll play. And he did. So we all piled into a car. We went to Palm Springs, dropped us off at the wrong hotel. First. Oh, we were wandering through places <laughs> with Willie Nelson and guitars. And, the, and we set up on stage, and we played our set. And then Frank Sinatra Jr. was conducting for his father. Yeah. Late in years, was a friend of mine. Because he somehow was not was records. And I knew him well. So he said, and he took you and me 
and he sat us on the edge of the stage, six feet from Frank Sinatra. And we knew that this was the last time anyone was ever going to see Frank Sinatra sing. And he, he wasn't in great shape, but his career was totally intact. So even though he had all these TV monitors up with lyrics everywhere, because he, he wasn't sure where he was a lot of the time. He still, he came out and did, I, I got the world on the string. I'll never forget it. That was the first song he did. He only did four or five songs. But he, and even though his voice was shattered yeah. with what it once been, his charisma and his magnetism and just his talent for phrasing, totally intact. Yeah. And we were six feet away from Frank Sinatra. And then he walked off and that was it, man. We got to witness. Did you, did you end up in his dressing room? I did with Willie. Yeah. I mean, remember it was like, we were like the three stooges, one head here. One head here, one head here, looking through the curtain. Yep. The three of us, like yep. kids. Yep. But thank you again. You made it possible. Listen to my mom's Beatles. Yeah. You know, New Yorkers. This was mom, my mom's Beatles. When I told her that, it was like, you know, it was between her and working with Leonard Bernstein was it? I'm you know, like, she. So many times you and I have been yeah. in a room where, like, I knew this was like something extraordinary. Yeah. And that. That we were like, we were like Zelig, man. We both felt the same way. Yeah. How do we get in? I know. We, we earned our way in the room, but, but I, I, I don't feel that way. I still feel like I'm nine. You yeah, know? I, I, I couldn't believe we were there seeing so much of the stuff that you and I have gotten to see over the years. But that was certainly, that was a really historic what moment. A, but you made it. Your instincts were like coming with you. And you made a bunch of kids jumping in the car. And you know, it was another one I, I just thought of. Last time we did a Christmas special with Neil Diamond, and he was already starting to. But when that camera came on, mm-hmm. wow, it was like uh, Sinatra. Well, you went, that's yeah. why this guy became partly why. I mean, he wrote yeah. great songs, but yes. he just, this was his, like being on a football field, a football player. I mean, he just went wham. And up to that, he was like kind of like confused and not knowing where he was going. Yeah, he, he was stark. Yeah. Another so, thing. We had worked with him. 20 yeah. years before, too. And we did that Music Cares tribute to him, too. We oh, yeah. We were, we were hoping yeah. that all, everyone, Jonas Brothers. Yeah. To, uh, That's right, yeah. yeah. Those Music Care things are incredible. It's incredible, yeah. Right. So, uh, but Neil is, I would have to say, he's a misunderstood artist. Because the first thing that struck me when, when we worked with him, when yeah. he, I, I felt he was really at the height of his power. You talking about Neil? Neil Diamond. Yeah, we did it at, at, at Ocean Way in the big room. He was very present and very cool. I remember I said something. He came up to me and went, that's a great idea. Well, artist ever says that to me. I don't know. He, but he, he is, is cool. He's a hip, he's, he's a hip yeah. smart guy. I just remember on that session, there were, we had Larry Nectel playing piano. Yeah. yeah, and yeah it was a great, yeah. I think Richard Thompson was playing guitar. What? And Ben Mott was playing. Yeah. Richard was in the room? Hmm? Richard was in sure. Yeah. I Richard and room. Mark Goldenberg. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and we cut the song, and, and I'd call, I called him up, which is something I would never be so obnoxious as to do this yeah. today. But I was, you know, feeling my oats, right? So I, I called him up, and I didn't know him, never met him. And I said, you know, I, I think you're a great rock and roll star, and you've lost your way. And I know how to set it back. What an arrogant fucking thing. He should have punched me. And, and Neil Diamond just paused at the end of the line, and he says, 
I'm, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but if you'd like to make a record together, I would love to. <laughs> and when I, when I was telling him, which I think I, I still think is true, is that when he plays the acoustic guitar and sings, that's when he made his best track. Yeah, yeah. But when he started letting sing, he lost your way. Come back to that. Yeah. Come back to that. You got to play acoustic guitar and sing. Yeah, that's good, man. And and so and you got to sing live with the band, so they react to you. So he, he hadn't done that in years. He hadn't like done it on stage, you know, but he hadn't done it on making records. It's all layered in and overdubbed. Right. Right. And so he sat, he sat in the booth and I'll just never forget looking at you because as soon as he started singing, yeah. he was like, oh my God, that's the new that guy. That's wow. that guy. Yeah, so iconic, that voice coming through the headphones. And we just looked at each other and laughed. It was another one of those moments. Like, well, another one was the Joe Cocker hearing his voice. Yeah. That was beautiful, that record. I really, that was a funny thing. I walked in the studio and I'm like, there's two drum sets and you come out and you're going, we're laughing your ass off. And I, I went, what's the one? He says, there's some songs I want Jim Kellner to play on and some of you and I couldn't decide. I, uh, you guys figure it out. It was like walking on a session and that was organic. And, yeah, but I wanted both. Oh, because, I know. It was because of Mad Dog. And, and it was incredible. Of course. Two jobs. But it was brilliant because Jim is so humble and we were like, well, you do first and then I'll come in. Well, not right. You play first and then I'll come in. It got to the point where he, I'd be kicked on hi-hat. He'd be snared on my toms. Yeah, or I'd play shaker and hi-hat and one tom. And he'd... And well, it, no, you played a garbage can. Yeah, garbage can yeah. one. And we simplified our parts, which actually, who was... They said the artist said, that we're playing too funky. And he said, you got to... It, it was a singer-songwriter on that Missouri. On that, on that album or another album? I almost say it was on that album. We were doing it. It might have been no room. Anyway, it, it was that was one of the greatest sounds. Yeah. Billy Preston on that record? Yeah, Billy Preston. Most haunting keyboard sound. Billy Preston was incredible. Incredible. Was so I never good. heard an organ sound like that. Ever. No one played like Billy Preston. No one either. When, when he died, man, there was that style of music ended. You yeah. could, you could, no one can do what he did. It was so clear. He was, he was the first, he, first of all, he invented the use of organ in popular yeah. music. And rock and roll certainly was there with Little Richard and, you know, like right at the, at the very beginning of rock and roll, he's playing B3. When he told me that one time he went on tour with Little Richard and uh, he went to England and there was one B3 in all of England and it broke one night and there you're just screwed, man, because there, there wasn't a second Hammond B3 in the UK. In the whole UK. Yeah. And so he just couldn't play when the organ broke. <laughs> yeah, that was one, those were one of those moments like you sang, you know, Diamond's voice, uh, you know, Joe Cocker's voice or whoever's voice. And, and all of a sudden, his, I went, whoa, whoa, what's that thing? Yeah. Incredible, man. He sounded great. And you remember, you know, Billy wrote, You Are So Beautiful. So he'd never played it with Billy before. Mentioned. And actually, I don't think they'd ever talked about, well, you know, how, what a big hit it was and what that did for Billy. So he's really, so we brought Billy in to play on that song, right? So he said to him, how come you never sang second verse? I always wanted to ask you that. Joe said, there's a second verse? <laughs> you didn't know that there was a second verse to song. He said, I, he said, so drunk when I cut that out or anything. And I, I didn't know there was a second verse. So Billy taught him the second verse. And when we, we cut it for this thing, that was, a, that was, that was the thing. Joe sang. Oh my God, one. I didn't even know that. Yeah. And then Randy Newman came in. Oh yeah, Randy. When I went out to work Conquer, that would be, I almost felt crying. I get goosebumps. Um, when he sang, I'm so, you're so beautiful. Mm -hmm. it, it was just so haunting. It was, yeah. Well, I remember somebody, a real famous producer, asking, Hey, man, what haven't you done that you want to do? And what's your five year plan? And I was like, 
felt like an idiot because I didn't walk. I'm going to have a five-year plan. I guess kind of keep doing what I'm doing, which is exactly what happened. And I went, what do I want to do that I'm not doing? I said, I'm doing everything I want to do. I just couldn't come on. I thought like I was like the idiot, like I'm supposed to have like this North Star to go after. Do you, How would you answer that? The way I would answer it now is when I turned 70, start thinking about it. I, actually, I think I'm playing bass better than I ever have in my life. Touchdown. Uh, and I'm finally getting some, got a good lesson from Ron Carter on the string bass and that really changed some of the technique things I was doing. And I love playing with Lear so much. And I thought, you know, 70, I see guitar and bass players who are dating. Some, like Ron Carter still sounds great at 86. Yeah. But you don't have, I figured I got 10 years of big singers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Max. Yeah, I know. So my that. goal now isn't like to do other things. It's to get better. At, I want to I wanna refine it. Every night, I feel like I'm learning something new. Something new falls into place. The search for what Ron Carter calls it, searching for the perfect notes. Mm. You just, I want to play better notes, which oftentimes means fewer notes, and get a tone that's got an emotional feel to it. Every every time you, like Ron Carter told me something, it just, it, there's, there was that much difference. And it's, it's minuscule, mm. but it opened up a universe. Mm. He said, you're not releasing your notes before you play the next one. He said, so they're, they're blurring together. Mm. So, oh, some exercise yeah. to, to practice that. Well, if you, if you allow the note to die out, you play the next one. You, that space makes you choose a different note than you would have played if it was blurred. So these are tiny things, but it's a whole universe if you're into the song. Yeah. So it's not that I, I, I need more variety. I just want to get better. I, want, I, I love, it's a, it's, a, it's a quest, man, to play better. Yeah. And every night you set out on it and every night you find something different. And fortunately, I'm playing with people who improvise, don't want to play it the same way twice. Yeah. You, you, it's a, yeah. It's the wrong thing to do. In my, in my Wears band, if you play the same thing you played last night, that's the one guarantee that you're going to be shitty because no one else is playing that's the same thing. That's kind of Give me something I haven't heard. Don't give me Man, you know, I, I, when I first got to gig with him, I called up Chick Corea. And I said, here's what I'm worried about, man. I'll play for three and a half hours, like two sets, like all different every night. I said, how do you play that long? And not repeat yourself. Chick Corea said, what's wrong with repeating yourself? He said, Charlie Parker repeated himself every song. That's how people knew it was Charlie Parker. He said, you're approaching this, all, you're thinking about this the wrong way. Wow. It's okay to repeat yourself. Just make sure that whatever you do, it's coming from the heart. And that, that gave me license to, that really relaxed a large part of my fear. Bam. Bob, you asked the right guy. I, was, um, I wish I could thank him. <laughs> yeah, thank them at the time. Yeah, it really helps. It was impressive. Great to yeah. hear that from yeah. man, Darren. Man, thank you so much. I mean, fuck, we go forever because we we literally have uh, experienced the music business even when we were had, had no success when we were just little kids. We did. The, we've experienced the greatest one of the greatest times in rock and roll. That's for sure. And then the, the uh, to be able to j- jump in the country and now you're in jazz. I mean, it's all there. I mean. I mean, and we could talk forever. I mean, there's so many stories. Sure, we go like, oh my God, remember that? Yeah. And the people watching, they should know the stories we wouldn't talk about because the boy, there were <laughs> one of the stories. 
that are in the realm of rock and roll. But we're not talking about that on I, this. I can't remember any of that. Yeah, I know. I, I know. I, yeah. You must be confused. Let's do it, man. Let's do it again because it's going to be another 15 years. In 15 years, we'll come back and say, how was your last 15 years? <laughs> yeah, we got to do something soon. Yeah. Awesome.